From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Hey, Steve, how are you doing today? Well, just getting over COVID. This is like day nine and yeah, it took a couple of years, but it finally hit this house. So Finally caught you. Yeah, well, we had that a couple months ago and uh, I was actually kind of relieved just to get out of the way. Now I feel like uh, COVID's done for me, you know? <laughs> yeah, to- it's, it's not fun. No. It, it certainly isn't fun. It uh, knocked me on my ass for a few days there. But yeah, as you said, uh, it's like, like that chicken pox when you were a kid and just get it over and done with and hopefully uh, we can start to, to move forward. So oh, Absolutely. So, well, we had a, a good podcast uh, today here. So this was uh, episode eight with uh, Logan Young, and I thought it went really well. He's uh, involved with Bear Trust International, which is a uh, conservation organization that uh, primarily focuses on the eight species of, of bears mm-hmm. found globally. Uh, and unlike a lot of conservation organizations around bears this organization is positive towards hunting as a management tool and i thought that was great and refreshing obviously and his yeah. Pers- yeah his, his perspectives first, were great yeah when i first saw the name i'm like oh this is uh this could be a fun conversation but then i did a little bit of a deeper dive into it and went oh right on their uh their homepage, they say that they're pro pro hunting is a, is a management tool. So, and getting to know Logan a little bit, uh, he's, he's a guide outfitter that goes back 40 some odd years in his family. So no stranger to hunting. And it was a great conversation that I really thought was, uh, eye opening on a few, uh, few different levels and will be great educational tool for those that may be on the fence about hunting in general. So I, yeah, it's, it, it was a great chat. I uh, enjoyed getting to know him and a little bit more about bear trust is uh, in general. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, unlike maybe some of our other podcasts, this one does dive a little bit deeper into, I guess, what could be perceived as more contentious issues around hunting, particularly, you know, bear hunting, grizzly hunting um, and trophy hunting. You know, Logan did talk about trophy hunting, and I thought he put a really good perspective on that. And, you know, the, uh, you know, for people that are listening, I think just, just, Listen with an open mind, you know, and and hear what he has to say. And I, I, I thought it was great. Uh, but yeah, these podcasts are the tool we have to have these discussions and, and we need to have. And it was it was fantastic. I thought he he did a really good job of of explaining his his positions and uh, and he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's the guy who walks the walk. He he's been spending most of his life in wilderness areas, uh, to a degree that most people couldn't even imagine like this guy's he's the real deal and uh so if he's telling you something it's probably worth listening to yeah what what i thought was really good is uh is is like like you said this podcast digs a little bit deeper into the hunting side of things and one campfire is about changing narratives and showing the the non-hunter exactly what hunting is all about and and sometimes those conversations are a little uncomfortable right so uh, we're going to try and challenge thought processes and, and stereotypes and stigmas and myths and educate and enlighten. We, we understand that not everybody is going to want to be a hunter, and that's not what we're trying to do. All we're simply trying to do is, is maybe change a couple of perspectives 
people may have about hunting itself and about how uh, sometimes we're portrayed as bloodthirsty killers and it's a shooting gallery and there's no regulations and just you walk around all Rambo-ish and, and shoot at will. And that's not what it's about and that's not what hunters are. And I think Logan really digs into that side about wildlife management and why hunting is important, not only to him as a person, but to wildlife in general. So I, I, as I said, I, I really enjoyed getting to know him a bit. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, he did, he really did state his, his, uh, perspectives well. And, uh, yeah, I just encourage anybody that has any interest in, uh, learning a little bit more about hunting and in particular, you know, bear hunting and, and quote unquote trophy hunting, Give this podcast a listen. I think you'll find it uh, potentially educational. And uh, yeah, just listen to it with an open mind. Uh, Logan's a great guy. And, you know, we're all on the same page as far as wanting to see thriving wildlife populations. And uh, yeah, I don't think much more needs to be said other than that. But yeah, I can't believe episode eight. We're, uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're chugging along here. It's, it's good. We got some good guests lined up. We've had some great guests in the past and uh, I, I look forward to seeing where we, we go in the future with this. So yeah, it's been great. All right, Steve. So without further ado, episode eight. The perception of hunting, you know, ha has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. Welcome, Logan Young. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with Steve and I. Um, so yeah, Logan and I actually have a little bit of history, which he informed me this morning he actually remembers. I, I used to guide for his father up in northern British Columbia. And uh, Logan was, I don't know, six years old or something along those lines. So he was young. His sister was a little bit older. But I, I remember you guys well because, of course, I was grown up and can remember those things. But, uh, yeah, you got a lot taller. That's all I can say. Yeah, gosh, guys. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's fun to be here with both of you and uh, talk about conservation hunting a little bit. So really small world remembering Jonathan from back in Crying Girl Prairie. And I was just <laughs> the idle grasshopper. Yeah, that's wow. right. Yeah, well, we've got lots to talk about here, Logan. Um, I, first, I guess I'd like to hear just a little bit about your, you know, your journey. I, I know you're a, you're a guide outfitter uh, up in the Yukon. Could you just tell us a little bit about your your path to that and and how things are working for you now? Sure. So, I mean, the people that don't know me, I uh, I grew up in the guide outfitting industry and hunting industry uh, my entire life. Uh, half of the year we lived in northern BC out in the mountains where we lived in dirt floor cabins and, and remote spike camps and stuff where we guided uh, stone sheep, mountain goat, moose, elk, bear hunters, and grizzly black bear both. And uh, I grew up a wonderful life out in the mountains in the Otter Tail and the Graham River 
uh, drainages and was very blessed to, to live that life. It's a unique upbringing, but I was, you, when you look back at now is a, a blessing to be able to be in the mountains at such a, such a young age. So uh, the rest of the year, I grew up in west of Calgary uh, on a ranch. And so outfitting and ranching is kind of in my blood and, and is what I've done my my whole life. So from there, we we moved in 1999 uh, from northern BC, Otter Tail River Outfitting to the northern Yukon, uh, concession number four in the heart and the Wind River drainages of the Peel River watershed. Uh, and our company now is Midnight Sun Outfitting. And so been there every year, guided, been in the mountains for over 100 days every summer, my entire life, and uh, recently bought the area with my sister uh, five, six years ago from our dad. And so now we uh, fully operate and own Midnight Sun Outfitting and uh, going to keep it going, hopefully for many more generations to come. Oh, that's that's a fantastic uh, uh, upbringing, Logan, I think. Uh, you're at a pretty elite group of, of people who have been able to spend so much time in wilderness areas from such a young age. That's uh, impressive. Yeah. You know, people always ask about when I was really young and when you look at the pictures and, and my parents, you know, they would, uh, they would put me in panniers and pack boxes and, and trail me into the bush. And, uh, you know, I think if I did that with, <laughs> with my son right now, my wife might kill me, but you know, back in the day that was, it wasn't that big of a deal. And, uh, so yeah, we used to get trailed into the mountains that way and, and we'd be there in our little cribs that were cut, slabbed from trees with chainsaws and, and uh, you know, it was it was a special upbringing, you know, raised you to be hardcore, but it uh, the pictures and the memories you have are really, are really fond. Yeah, and, and also the skills you learn too. I mean, you uh, having spent all that time in the mountains guiding and just, just living, uh, that's a pretty unique uh, opportunity just to become extremely competent and in wild places that's that's fantastic too yeah i i believe you know that kind of the the mountains kind of become a part of you you know i mean you can become comfortable in the bush but when you grew up in it i mean you know the mountains are really a part of your life and uh you know you understand things i think you know better than somebody that uh maybe just kind of is starting to explore and, and be in the mountains i mean when you grow up in it you learn senses and it, it becomes really a part of who you are and so I've been lucky that that's that's what I was able to do. And so now, Logan, you you live uh, in the off season. You're not guiding. You're you're down in Colorado. Is that correct? Yep. So in the winter, my wife uh, Courtney and uh, my two year old boy Lucas Grant, uh, we live in Windsor, Colorado, and I work for a conservation group that's called Bear Trust International, and I'm the executive director of Bear Trust. And so we work uh, with a great team, great donors, amazing board of directors. Uh, an amazing chairman, and we work uh, to conserve the eight species of bears worldwide. And we also have a huge sector in the educational lesson plans. Uh, so we work really hard to educate the youth, uh, future generations uh, of about hunting, heritage, conservation, grizzly bears, all all different species of bears. And so, you know, it's a really, really wonderful organization. And our our ideology about it is, you know, to get in the classrooms and, and teach kids about hunting and, and where their food comes from and conservation, North American conservation model, and really try to be the leading force from a young age and mentor these kids all the way through high school and into their adult life uh, to be hunters and conservationists. And so I'm really passionate about it because I, I believe that 
a lot of the a lot of the social pressures and a lot of the the big issues that we're facing right now uh, come from the grizzly bear and other bears because they're you know such a charismatic megaphone as some people would say um, mm-hmm. you know there's such a there's such a social issue around them that it if we lose all grizzly bear hunting and all bear hunting altogether I I think next is sheep hunting next is elk hunting moose hunting so uh, we're kind of on the on the on the front range, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it's something I'm really passionate about and, and we have a great organization. So if you haven't heard of Bear Trust International, uh, please sign up, become a member, become a life member, uh, try to come to one of our events. You know, we're, we're affiliated with the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, work closely with them and the founding member of the AWCP, which is the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. And uh, so we work really hard at it and very blessed to, to be a part of Bear Trust. Yeah, let's dig into Bear Trust a little bit. How how long ago was it formed, and what was the uh, the catalyst for for kicking it off? Yeah, so it was formed by uh, probably one of the greatest conservationists that I I've been blessed to be around, a, a gentleman named Charles Schmid, uh, A. C. Schmid. Uh, he founded it in 1999, and really with the idea of doing the lesson plans. So he originally. Um, had started himself with several team members and then he'd hired a a, a, la- a lady that uh, has a PhD in, in education and she developed lesson plans uh, that that really went into the classroom and taught kids not not forcefully not in a way that's like you must believe in hunting but in a way that says here's the facts here's the data sets uh, that are done by biologists here is the North American conservation model and you make up your own mind. I mean, the, the data will speak for itself that hunting is conservation. And so it's, but it's really, it's not a forceful play. It's a really, you look at the data yourself. And if you look hard enough, you will find that selective harvest and conservation models is really the key to, to wildlife populations and habitat. And so uh, that's kind of the approach that he took with it. And it's been wonderful. You know, we've reached, I think last year we reached 10,000 kids. And so we're trying to really push toward the inner cities now. Um, and so we're, we're being very strategic and where we market these lesson plans and stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really great. So it's gone now for over 20 years and, and we've developed it into more conservation projects and developed more lesson plans every year, updated lesson plans every year, uh, you know, new data sets that come out. And so now we're assisting in projects all over the world. We just launched uh, a huge project in India uh, that we're assisting on for the sloth bear. And so something that some people don't know that I didn't know is the sloth bear is responsible for more bear attacks than all other bears combined. And so they're a little bear. They don't look like they'd be, you know, a, a something you'd really fear. But, uh, you know, these people live in such close vicinity with with all these bears that they interact with them at watering holes and in their crops and stuff in Gujarat, India. And so what we've done is is assist in putting together huge volunteer groups that go out and they teach these rural communities how to interact uh, with these sloth bears and be safe. And, and we're tracking them via trail cameras and cell cameras. And uh, it's been a really, really great project. And so that's one of the ones that recently in the last six months here we're doing internationally. Uh, we're also assisting uh, in the Yukon with a, a giant grizzly bear project that they're doing in the Yukon. That's hopefully going to be the largest grizzly bear project ever in Canada. Uh, you know, the, the data that we have for population studies in the Yukon dates back to 1987. 
And so, you know, a lot of the people that come at you uh, from the other side, they, they, they fall back on, well, how do you even know the populations? Because the data sets are so outdated that you can't really tell us how many grizzly bears there are. And so this will really help if we have updated populations, it'll be really a, a, a strong foundation to stand on uh, that we can stand up for what we believe in. And that's that there should be a legal, uh, you know, increase in harvest in, in British Columbia and the Yukon. So, you know, when you spend as much time as I do in the mountains and the amount of bears that I've been blessed to guide, um, you know, over hundred grizzly bears and black bears my entire life and, and see the amount of bears that I see every summer, I know what the populations are, you know, I mean, I, I can, I can feel it because I live out there. And uh, so it'll be really fun to be able to try to prove that through, through some of these data projects. And so really looking forward to the, to the Yukon projects and then uh, other projects in the United States we're working on. Uh, we work closely with the Western bear foundation um, working in the Western States, of the U S as well as uh, you know, we try to do some things supporting the, the tall tan, uh, in British Columbia and all their efforts and GUABC with Scott Ellis and the team uh, at GUABC. So we, uh, yeah, we're working all over, but our main focus is in North America. And that's where we try to keep most of the the funds that we raise from all our, our great donors. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Get out and join Bear Trust International and try to try to come to one of our events. We have a, we have a great support system and, and our events are just so much fun. Well, that, that's a great endorsement, Logan. I'm definitely going to join. Uh, that sounds fantastic. So as, I have a couple of questions about the educational side of things now. So you guys are going into the classrooms, like going to different schools and actually going into the classrooms themselves, or how does that work? Yeah. So before COVID, we would go right into classrooms, but the biggest reach is, is online. So you can download uh, the lesson plans online and uh, our director of education, she will take the take the downloads and then do a little research on who you are, make sure you're a legitimate teacher um, before we send you passcodes to the answer keys and things like that. So um, yeah, you download directly off our website at beartrust.org. And, and that's the main reach that we have as well as other, some other educational platforms that we try to promote on. But the biggest one is off our website. You can download most lesson plans. Now has, have these lessons been mostly taught to Amer uh, United States students or have you guys been up in Canada yet? Uh, some have been in Canada, but mostly across the US. You know, it's really interesting. Like, you know, we we promote them, market them, all different platforms. And so it's kind of fun for us to see, you know, where you get the downloads. I mean, there'll be several downloads a day and uh, some will be from a teacher in an elementary school in Alaska. And then you'll have down in Tennessee. And yesterday we had Minnesota. I mean, I mean so it's really, it's really fun to see where people are picking up on it. And, uh, and so it, that, that's really kind of cool, but it's mostly where there are bears, you know, a lot of the Western states, you get a lot of downloads through Idaho and Montana and uh, Wyoming and Colorado. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, you talked a little bit about the international efforts as well uh, and how you guys are working to property manage bears globally. So most people in North America will, would be familiar with grizzly bears, black bears, and polar bears. So, but there's uh, five other species. You mentioned the one in India. Uh, you said the sloth bear. Yeah, there's the sloth bear. Um, there's the spectacle bear in South America. There's the sun bear, uh, the panda bear. There's uh, so there's eight species of bears worldwide. But you know the 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 thing with India is is there's no hunting at all in India, and so that's a little bit of a different program. Um, 
you know, we're not we're not trying to bring back the sloth bear so that there could be a season for them or anything. I mean, we're just trying to protect human bear conflict, you know, and, and teach people how to interact with with the species so that people can be safe mostly. So, yeah, well, that sounds I mean, with, uh, you know, the management of bears, human bear conflicts is a big part of that, even in North America. I know in our our area, uh, dozens and dozens of black bears are killed every year by the conservation officers just because of the conflicts with people. Right. So yeah, the better the better people could learn how to coexist with bears, especially in those interface areas where people live. Uh, you know, fewer unnecessary bear deaths need to occur. You know, even though bear attacks aren't all that common, there's going to be less chance of that as well. So and that helps for the conservation of bears and just the yeah, overall, it's good for everybody to have that kind of education. So that, that sounds pretty important. Yeah, well, you know, what we've really seen since they, uh, you know, the politicians shut down grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia, you see there's so much more conflict, you know, because the hunters would, they would take out some of these freaking bears that are problem bears because they're close to towns, they're close to roads, they're, um, you know, they're, they're very present. And so, you know, we've seen a, a huge, a huge increase in, uh, in bear human conflict in British Columbia as well. So, uh, we're working, we're working hard to hopefully prove the data and try to get that reversed so that there can be a, a manageable season for, for hunters and for outfitters alone, because, you know, that was a, a huge detriment to a lot of outfitters. You know, that was what fed their family. I know growing up, you know, our grizzly bear hunts, you know, if, if, if we were in that situation now, I mean, that would that's what kept clothes on my back and, and put fuel in our trucks and kept us, uh, kept us going in life, you know, was the stone sheep and the grizzly bear was really where most of the profit margins were for, for my family. So, uh, you know, I obviously have a soft spot in my heart for that. And, and I plan on doing everything I can to try to try to help the outfitters in British Columbia. Well, I know where I am here in Prince George, uh, spring bear is my absolute favorite hunt. And yeah. it's, it's nothing for us to see 25, 30 bears on a, a nice drive in May. And before the hunt closed, we'd see two, three grizzly bears every couple of weeks. And in a weekend, the year after the grizzly hunt closed in 2017, so the spring of 2018, we saw nine grizzly bears in six hours. And they didn't care. They didn't get off the road. Uh, we we actually had to stop the truck a couple of times and let them get out of the way. They just they they lost their their fear, and it's just a matter of time before somebody pushes them too far and they they realize they got nothing to worry about. They're the apex predator, and uh, humans thumping in a road have an impact, right? And we're in their their house and they're going to try and start taking it back. Right. And we need to manage accordingly. And it's, uh, Absolutely. it's, it's detrimental to the species, right? It's as, as we talked about a little earlier before we started recording, they're, they're almost disnified, right? When you're seeing videos and they're using commercials where that they're, that they're drinking Coca-Cola, that's polar bears, but the same sort of thing, right? Is they're, they're making them cute, cuddly and, not wild animals. I get the attraction for people that don't understand them, that uh, they're, they're, they're a gorgeous animal. They're a beautiful animal. And, and us as hunters, we don't want to see extirpation or extermination. We want to see them thrive. And the way to do that is to manage them scientifically. 
So yeah, we, we need to, to, to hold politicians feet to the fire, so to speak, to, to pull the emotion out of, out of wildlife management. And it's, it's sad because if, if you look at Africa, right, uh, the, the best models for wildlife rehabilitation and wildlife populations are in countries that have regulated hunting. And the ones where they're crashing are the ones where they've said, no, you're not hunting anymore. Mm -hmm. And I fear that's what's going to happen with us here in grizzly, in grizzly country in 10, 15 years is the grizzlies are going to increase. And all of a sudden they're going to start tanking because they're, they're competing for uh, space and food and habitat and you name it. And we're, we're going to be all of a sudden going, uh Oh, what did we do? How do we fix this? So, yeah, I, I think just to add on to that, I think, uh, you know, when there was a hunting season for grizzlies in British Columbia, the, the harvest that hunters took was, was pretty minimal. Um, you know, it was a low percentage, didn't have an overall influence on the population in most areas. And I think we were already seeing the effects of, of uh, I wouldn't say overpopulation, but, but, you know, their habitats being in many areas fully utilized. Because in, in my area, in, in Nelson here, we'll have grizzly bears come right into town, young bears primarily. Sometimes sows with cubs, right? And it's not because they necessarily want to be in town. It's just there's nowhere else to go because every other place is occupied by a different grizzly, right? And uh, I think the uh, the issue for me as much as anything is the fact that, you know, the grizzly hunt in British Columbia did add a lot of social value to, to people's lives and, you know, and as well as economic value to the guide outfitting industry and just, you know, the resident hunting uh, uh power of resident hunters in the province to generate revenue different communities that's been taken away uh solely based on the opinions of people that really have nothing to do with bears and i think that's probably the part that's the most concerning is that you know populism to that degree in that way as a tool to manage wildlife just seems absurd and we've gone down that path in british columbia with grizzly bears and uh you know which i think is a huge mistake and like logan had said earlier in the podcast you know, sheep, goats, other species would be next, right? This isn't, you know, th this is a battle for our hunting heritage, and this is the, a battle to preserve the current uh, models of wildlife conservation in North America. And if we lose that, what do we replace it with? And I think that to me is, goes far beyond bears, but it's concerning because we're, we are fighting for, to preserve a model of wildlife conservation that has been unbelievably successful. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine why anybody would want to mess with it, but there are groups that do. Uh, so, I you know this is a this is a big battle that goes beyond bears, obviously. But bears are important because even from a wildlife perspective, if you look at the the, the data on the predation pressure bears will have on other species, primarily ungulates, it could be enormously enormously significant. And in a province where we're talking about you know reconciliation with First Nations, yet abandoning the our responsibility to manage wildlife properly it just doesn't make sense i mean like you're talking about the tall tan and the tall tan have seen declines in some of their ungulate populations and they've recognized bears play a role in that and the overabundance of bears right um and i like i i don't really understand how their voice isn't being listened to to a greater degree than it than it is yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, they came out with a bounty for their people because they're saying, hey, we're going to do our own studies and their studies have shown that there needs to be a, a viable harvest. And, you know, you ask people that, you know, here's the thing. 
the whole thing got shut down without any sort of research study. It was supposed to have all kinds of studies that never got done. And so, you know, you ask people that were hunting grizzly bears before the closure and you ask what the success rate was. Well, it was very high. It was very high because there's an abundant amount of grizzly bears in the Northern Rockies. And, uh, and so it's just really sad. And, and, you know, you look at a, you look at an organization like the wild sheep foundation, which is, you know, embedded in my heart, my been there my whole life, been since I was born in every sheep show. Um, you know, you look at a, a success story. I mean, nothing like the wild sheep foundation has done. The wild sheep foundation has changed the game as far as conservation goes and the success they've had for putting sheep on the mountain is, is unbelievable. And that was all funded 99% through hunters. And so, you know, they say hug a hunter. Well, yeah, give them a big squeeze because if you love wildlife, there is nothing more important than, than, than legal viable hunting, because those are the people that are raising the money to, uh, to keep these species flourishing. And so yeah. that's what we need for grizzly bears and, and a lot of bears. Yeah, absolutely. Like I know, uh, when, when this all came down in 2017, the government had said that they had not intended to close the hunt. That was not even on the, the table. They were going to put restrictions in place to make it no longer a trophy hunt, meaning you had to bring out all edible portions. And every single hunter I talked to said, awesome, grizzly bears, delicious. Like it's, I've, I've had it a multitude of times and it is, it's right up there with some of the best meat you've ever eaten. So the argument they use that it was nothing but a trophy hunt is ridiculous. And when you start to throw in stats for BC, I, I think it said that uh, the grizzly bears could uh, stand a harvest of up to 5% of their total population per year and still be uh, stable. Not declining, not increasing, but stable. And out of an estimated 15,000 bears, they figures in BC, we were taking less than 300. I think it was 280 the year before. So that's less than one, one or two percent a year. So we're having a regulated hunt in place, which is bringing in economic uh, viability for uh, outfitters and retailers and little communities. And our populations are still increasing. So pulling away something that's supposed to be scientifically managed for populism doesn't make sense under the, and it goes completely against the North American model of wildlife, right? It just, it's it's mind-boggling to me. Yep, I agree. I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. It's just uh, you know political and a social move, and it's really sad. And so you know that's kind of where where we come in. You know, bear trust. I mean, that's why we're trying to not just change the narrative because there's lots of people doing that, and that's so important. But really try to educate kids because the the truth is 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 these people that are are our opposition, they're just they're not educated on the matter. You know, they have a heart and they, they see these bears and they're, you know, some of them are great people and they just have a, a love for these bears like we do. And if they would understand the North American conservation model, they would understand that, Hey, you know, we're really in, in a small sense, we're on the same page. You know, if you want to see the grizzly bear uh, flourish and, and be longstanding and, and be healthy populations, then we might have a different idea of how, how that happens. But these are the facts from hundreds of years over. This is this is what has kept so many species alive and 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 increased in populations. So really, you know, it's it's about changing the narrative, and and for us, it's about getting in the classroom and trying to educate kids uh, on the data. But that's why there needs to be more studies. The more studies, the better. 
because all that's going to prove mm-hmm. is uh, there's lots of grizzly bears and, you know, a, a small 5% harvest, that's, that'll be nothing, you know? And, and that's the thing, like you say, like all the outfitters, when they got shut down, it's not like they had unlimited quota, you know, shoot as many grizzly bears as you want. All these guys were on quota for one, two, three, four, five grizzly bears. I mean, nothing crazy. I mean, so uh, it's really sad. Hopefully we can, hopefully we can get a new government in obviously, but uh, you know, I hope, I hope one day people will, will really learn about North American conservation model and, and really see the facts of conservation. And we we're, we're doing that through open discussion. And that's what I think is so important. Yeah. And good point there about the, you know, the quotas on the harvest of grizzlies that existed in BC before it was shut down. I think that's one of the things that maybe people don't understand who aren't educated on the subject is that, you know, guide outfitters and resident hunters had very tight regulations around the harvesting of grizzlies. Like there was, you just couldn't go out and shoot grizzlies. It was all under draw systems and quotas uh, just to make sure that the, there would not be an excess of harvest of the bears. And, you know, even when we still had the grizzly season, are and, and anecdote is one thing. I mean, you go out and say, Well, I see a lot of bears. What does that really mean? But if enough people are seeing a lot of bears and, and continually seeing more and more bears year after year, it, it does that's a signal that you should pay attention to. And even when we were still permitted to hunt grizzlies in the province, uh, in my experience here in the Kootenays, I mean, like I have a cabin a couple hours north of the town I live in, and uh, I see more grizzlies than elk up there. Like, there's just so many grizzly bears. And I love grizzly bears. I love living in wild country that has grizzly bears and black bears for that matter. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the managed, highly managed hunting of grizzly bears and, and, and grizzly bear conservation not only can coexist, but, but should coexist. That, that to me seems like the best model because taking away the, the grizzly bear hunt, uh, just carte blanche like the BC government did, uh, basically just removes one of the tools from the tool belt of the biologists. You know, you, you want them to manage all these other species, but you're not giving them one of their most important tools, which is predator management. And I want to swing a, a little bit around too, and this is probably going to get me a, li- a little bit of hot water as far as the, you know, grizzly bear meat's good. There's nothing nothing wrong with it at all. I have no problems with the regulations in BC should be, be permitted to hunt bears again, require the uh, retrieval of all the meat. That's fine. You know, I've eaten plenty of grizzly bear. But I do think we, as hunters, we want to make sure that we we do draw a firm line between, you know, hunting for sustenance and food and predator management, because in some areas it's the predator management component. That's the most important. And it's like, like wolf hunting, you know, people aren't eating wolves, nor should they be expected to yet. We do need to have, uh, you know, a, a management strategy for wolves where they exist, which includes hunting. So I just think as hunters, you know, yes, eating the meat, I think validates what we do, but I don't think we should be scared to talk about predator management Ooh. and the effects that predators can have on other populations, which requires that they be managed properly. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. You, you, you can't balance one without trying to balance another. You see, you see these arguments on social media all the time. Well, if you leave it alone, it'll balance. No, it, it, it'll, it'll come to a plateau and all of a sudden something's going to crash. It's just how nature works now that humans have had an impact on it, right? And I fully agree. I've said it before that uh, we shouldn't be basing wildlife management based on perceived edibility. You're going to get into a vicious cycle and a circle there that nobody wants to to jump in on. And it's, yeah, it's it's not a fun one. So So 
up on the Yukon, Logan, uh, obviously you're still permitted to uh, hunt grizzly bears. What's the sort of the political uh, environment about hunting? Quite a bit different than British Columbia, I'd imagine, in many other jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have some opposition groups, same as came into British Columbia, um, trying to shut down, you know, the harvest. Uh it's it's always it's always on the on the doorstep and so what we're trying to do now as yukon as yukon outfit association and, and bear trust and is uh you know try to play try to play defense best we can and and try to educate people and 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 do the right thing you know i mean we stay within our quotas we most outfitters like us i mean grossly under harvest our quota and so uh it shows good management it shows ethic ethical morals you know for wildlife you know not killing every single quota that you have uh you know always trying to kill boars only you know or old dry sows um which is what only thing you can't kill so uh but really try to only kill boars and so you know i mean we're just trying to do what is right and then providing support all the yukon outfitters in the association uh are providing support to to jody and, and joelle and a lot of the mark donahue and a lot of the guys and girls that are running the the bear project uh we're going to try to raise money to try to get helicopter time and get cameras and get test sites and get hair samples so that we can do the proper studies uh to have the data and whatever the data says is says you know we're not trying to manipulate it we're, we're saying we want to see the data um you know they have some amazing software now where you take pictures of the bear's face and it, it has facial recognition software uh, so it can tell where that grizzly uh, is is roaming and and kind of its path is it's on. And so it's really, really neat all the stuff they can do now. It's with all this updated software. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. But, you know, just really briefly stepping back to what you guys said, I really agree with with both of your comments. But I would challenge the opposition. You know, don't 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 listen to us. You know, three guys that love hunting, you know, love conservation. Don't listen to us. If, if you if you think grizzly hunting is a terrible thing go talk to go talk to the tall town go talk to the first stations you know this is their land go talk to them go talk to your local conservation officer go talk to your local head biologist and and really do your research don't you know don't just make an opinion and 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 i vow to do the same you know i i i have open communications with people in the greater yellowstone ecosystem through bear trust and all over that totally disagree with me and hate hunting and i call them all the time and and discuss different topics so i uh i would challenge the opposition to really do your research and 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 visit visit the tall town nation go talk to the people mm -hmm. see, what, see what they think and what you'll learn is is that they believe a sustainable harvest is is what we need so um Absolutely. but anyhow in the yukon we're, we're trying to play defense and 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 really show the facts and, and do the studies uh to try to keep keep grizzly hunting alive so yeah chad day is uh just an incredible person to talk to yeah. and uh got a chance to chat with him before they'd release their uh their their bounty system and he asked uh myself and a couple other guys what we thought of it and we said well hey it's your your territory you need to manage accordingly and it's it's worked for them like i did a fly-in hunt up there this past september and we had grizzly bears following us uh like on our trail like we're miles away from any sort of civilization like we were walking and like there was grizzly bears following us saw them a couple of times and i know jp has a great story about how grizzly bears uh come into uh your your meat caches they're yeah. it's yeah, we, we lost a moose this last uh this last fall up in that in the tall tent territory we uh my hunting partner shot a moose early on and we lost 
all but 88 pounds of it. And uh, yeah, and uh, but I, I ended up getting one. I wasn't actually even going to shoot moose, but after he lost his, it was like, wow, we, we want to have our winter's meat, right? So I, sh- I ended up taking one. But yeah, they're they're obviously abundant. And I think I think having these discussions is important and talking to people that have different opinions because, I mean, I, I'm not always right about things and I can learn as well, even if somebody really doesn't agree with me, I can learn something from them. Uh, and for people listening and, and Logan yourself, you might want to uh, swing back and listen to one of our earlier podcasts we had with a uh, SimQ First Nations fellow, uh, Hunter Lab Pro. He, we talk a bit about bear hunting in that podcast and I thought that was his his perspectives were fantastic and again that's you know those are first nations perspectives and i do think that you know as we move forward in in british columbia and and really you know probably the yukon as well that's maybe different there. I, i'm not as familiar we, we really do need to start listening to our first nations and, and some of the because i think what ends up happening is you'll have a coastal first nations that doesn't traditionally hunt grizzly bears and is maybe even opposed to it for some reason and then the the media will pick up on on that and they'll try to project that as the first nations opinion on bear hunting but it's not it's it's you know these these first nations groups are as diverse as your european groups were in europe and country you know what i mean like they have different languages different cultural uh uh manifestations they have you know different dietary preferences have different food economies depending on where they live and and you know i think we need to start listening to what they have to say because i think for a lot of the interior first nations they intimately understand the necessity for proper wildlife management and they have the exact same motivations we do they want to see thriving wildlife on the landscape so yeah i think discussions and dialogue is is good especially for people who who don't understand these issues very well i think it's 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 good to educate yourself yeah i mean i think you said it too but you know also predator management like we talked about before i mean up in the yukon a lot of the bands you know their main concern is is the the moose population well there's nothing that kills more moose calves than than grizzly bears and so, you know, they, they believe in a grizzly bear hunt, you know, they, they want that because they understand if, if they lose the moose, I mean, that they rely on the moose fully, you know, for their entire band. And so, uh, for us, that really, that really helps because they, they see it because they use the resource. Um, and so they want to protect it just like us. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not an either or situation where you can have moose or you can have grizzlies. You can have both you, and you can have both. In abundant in abundance right you don't have to to really suppress something to the degree where it's it's scarce but when you get an overabundance of a predator especially something like grizzlies like if, if you it, a very brief look at the literature especially out of alaska alaska seems to have done a lot of good research on on bear predation on ungulates in many areas and it's clear that you know grizzly bears in particular but black bears as well can have major impacts on ungulate populations some some of the studies have shown uh, up to 90 or even over 90% of moose calves are killed in the first couple of weeks by grizzly bears. And, uh, and black bears, I, you know, can be major predators as well. There was a, uh, BC Wildlife Federation, uh, convention in, I think it was 2014. And I was going through the PDFs of the studies from that. And one of the presenters was talking about declining elk populations in the Rocky mountains. And I, I, I hopefully I'm not misremembering this, but I know I'm close. Uh, 40% uh, of elk calves were killed by grizzly bears and 21 by black bears. So right off the bat, you lost 61% of your elk, your, your, your recruitment to the future. Now, again, I'm not against grizzlies and black bears eating elk calves, but there is a, if you have an excessive number of bears in an area, in calving areas for elk, you're going to see declining elk populations. And if that goes on long enough, you're going to see 
you know, you could see almost complete extirpation of elk in certain areas. So we, you know, human beings in the other fallacy, I know I'm on a bit of a soapbox here is that, you know, somehow it's only recently that humans have been manipulating the, the environment around us. Before that, everything just sort of flowed naturally without human involvement. But that's a fallacy. Humans have been managing wildlife and the habitats wildlife use for thousands and thousands of years around the world, including North America. Uh, and the tall tan will back that up. They're, they're, you know, their their oral traditions about managing predators goes back thousands of years. So it's not something new, and it's not something we should abandon suddenly because somehow it it doesn't work now. You know, it it, it doesn't. Uh, it's not something that we should throw away. I agree. <laughs> okay, yeah, that I was mean, yeah, that was my soapbox speech. We could have the it, podcast now. Everything was, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but it's the truth yeah. though. It's the truth though, right? Like it's it, there's such an emotional draw to to hunting whether or not you're pro or against. And a, a lot of that issue is come back to, we, we've had this conversation over and over and over is how social media is affecting it. Like I knew as soon as uh, those organizations that were pushing to close the, the grizzly hunt got a hold of that video where that uh, bear was shot on the snow slide and it tumbles and they dump a bunch of shots into it and they're hooting and hollering and it's blood everywhere. I knew that was it right? Uh, as hunters, we know that unfortunately, sometimes it takes more than one shot and you, you need to follow up. But that made it on the internet and media grabbed a hold of it and it was, oh damn, here we go. So it's, unfortunately, sometimes we're our own worst enemy, right? It's, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult conversation to have. And as an outfitter, Logan, how do you see social media fitting into to hunting because it's kind of goes with your position at bear trust international it goes kind of against what you need to show as an outfitter right you, you need to show those for lack of a better term grip and grins to to grab clientele but when you're educating you don't really want to be showing that so how does that really fit into to you yeah it can be kind of a challenge um i mean i'm open about my beliefs you know i'm not trying to hide anything and uh that's it you know, our mission statement of Bear Trust is exactly that. You know, we we believe in hunting. You know, I want to say it out in the open. You know, we believe in hunting, but we believe in science too. So we believe in in following the data. And so, you know, it is hard. And I challenge, or I uh, I struggle with social media because you know I was raised I was raised very old school. You know, I was uh, I'm an old soul. I was I don't need to post everything I do. You know, I got fifty. I think I saw this morning. I got fifty one thousand pictures on my on my iPhone. And I don't post any of them. And, uh, you know, so it can be hard. Uh, but I, I'd say this, I'd say most hunters, you know, there's always an exception and there's always a 1% person that kind of, kind of ruins it for everybody. And I would say, uh, I would say to the opposition and to people again, you know, judge, judges based on the majority and the majority of the people that are hunters and outfitters and anglers are the most respectful people you could ever be around. They love wildlife. They love conservation. They love being out there in the mountains. They love the experience. They love, they love the hunt. They love the pursuit. It's not all about the kill. Um, you know, I mean, for me, every, I've done this since I was my first sheep hunt when I was six years old, I've always, uh, taken the, the heart of a sheep and removed it from the gut pile and said a prayer over it with, with my client and my, and whoever I'm with. And so, you know, I mean, we have such a respect for these animals because, not only do we rely on them financially and and to raise my family and 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 reach all my goals in life but but also you know t 
to get to where you harvested or, or killed that animal, you got to you got to enjoy the beauty of where you are. You see where these animals live, what they have to endure through the winter time, through disease, through wolves trying to kill them and hamstring them in the crisp snow and and you know snow. I mean, golly, you know, eight feet of snow in the backcountry on the North Slope right now. I mean, it's uh, it's unbelievable. So I mean, you gain such a respect for them that you know there'll never be a day where where I'm not. I'm not saddened a little bit every time you kill something. And I think, uh, I think that's kind of where hunters get, get put in a bad light is, uh, you know, they think people are just bloodthirsty killers. And, you know, I mean, people who know me, I can, I was killed as many animals as anybody. Okay. But I mean, I, 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 I feel, I feel a, a certain sadness every time I have a hunter, hunter kill an animal because I have such respect for them. And so that's the way I try to honor them in that manner. And I think hunters do that. You know, I mean, looking at JP right now in the, in the, in the zoom call here, I mean, he's got a big elk mounted behind him. I mean, that's how we, that's how we honor these experiences and the trophies that, uh, that we pursue. And so I would say just wrap, judge us based on the majority and the majority of hunters are, are, are so respectful and, and we love animals just the same way that, that the greenies do just in a different manner. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's hard with social media because you can take one clip and cancel everybody. Well, that's right. It's tough, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to add on to that, Logan. Uh, thinking back to my guiding days for your dad there up on Crying Girl, and one of the impressions that I walked away from after my guiding experiences was that the majority of people that I guided, the adventure was such a big part of it. They just wanted to be out there. Like most of these people aren't from wild areas or from urban areas, uh, mostly in the States, sometimes Europe. And, uh, you know, the, the harvesting of an animal is a bonus. You know, most right. of these guys, I mean, yes, they were happy to get a goat, let's say, but I was just amazed how they, you know, and you'd see them over the, the period of days just unwind. You know, the first day they come in, they're still wound up pretty tight from their normal life, which often has a lot of stress, you know, a week into the mountains and, you know, they've just, they're, they're just relaxed. You know, they've lost 10 pounds. They're uh, up a uh, hole in their belt and they're, you know, there, there's a certain peace to them. You know, at least that was my experience. They just, they reconnected and in the harvesting an animal. Yeah. That was the ultimate goal, but you know, that wasn't required for the, for the connection, although it is required to be a successful hunter. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, at least as far as acquiring an animal goes. Um, but yeah, I think that's the, the reverence for wild places and the reverence for wildlife that, that like you said, Logan, the majority of hunters have is profound. And it's so profound that the very small percentage of the population that hunts, uh, provides a lion's share of the money required for the conservation of wildlife and around the world for the most part. So yeah, we're, we're doing all the heavy lifting. Yes, we are consumptive users, but we're doing the heavy lifting because we love these animals, you know, and, and I think that's not an overstatement. And it, it is about the experience. You know, I mean, my job as a guide outfitter is, is to make sure people and hunters around the world, you know, and, and the youth, you know, the young hunters, the, the new generation, I mean, that's the most important is that they not only know that these places exist, but they get to experience them. And, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, I mean, don't forget that there's places in the world where, you know, you, you can ride 100, 200 miles. You know, we trail our horses in for 12 days, you know, over 200 miles to our furthest northern sheep camps. I mean, the the country you go through just untapped. I mean, it's the vastest wilderness probably left in the world. And, and you know, it's my job to 
remind the world, hey, these places exist and and you need to experience them because they will they will change you. And and you know, the two hunters that I see now are are, are you know, we've been guide outfitting 40 years, right? I mean, I see two kind of hunters. The 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 hunter that's there for nothing but the experience. They just want to experience it and and shoot a sheep or a grizzly or a big moose, caribou, whatever. They're there for for the experience. And then you have these these hunters, which are some of my favorite, that they've hunted so much that they're after a certain trophy class. And you know what I always try to explain to people is, oh, these people, you know, they say, oh, the trophy hunters, you know, they, all they care about is the the rack or the score. Well, in in my experience, those people that have come up there, those are the people that have spent millions and millions of dollars sitting there Friday night, Saturday night, the Wild Sheep Foundation auction buying these big tags, trying to kill a 170 inch ram, trying to kill a 190 inch bighorn. I mean, these are the people that are putting the the treasure, putting the money on the table for conservation projects. And so you see two different kinds of people and and they want to try to shine the, the hardcore trophy hunters with the bad light. Well, those are the people that really they're putting their their money where their mouth is. And, you know, money helps, you know, money. It's hard to do studies it's hard to it's hard to fly helicopters and, and do uh population studies and put out cameras and and set hair sample sets and everything without funds and so it's uh from both sides of it i mean it's it's a win-win either way you have people that are enjoying it and you have people that are also enjoying it but you know they're they're pursuing something that is so hard to do i mean to kill a 170 inch ram is it's it's a feat of a lifetime. It's a feat of 10 lifetimes. I mean, I think there was 500 rams killed in the Yukon last year. And I don't, I don't know if there was one that was 170, you know what I mean? So you're, you're talking about the Super Bowl of our, of our hunting industry. And, uh, and those are the people that are, that are putting them the money on the table to really make all these projects come into, come into place. So those are the two kind of clients that I, that I get a lot. And I'm thankful for, for both of them. Yeah. Logan, I, I think that's a good point about the, you know, quote unquote trophy hunting. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the types of people who are selectively looking for a special, usually a, an old mature male um, and willing to pass on a lot of other legal animals that don't fit their criteria, you know, not only do they tend to harvest fewer animals, but you're right. These are the same people that show up to all these conservation uh, events and put money on the table and, I, I really do think it's unfortunate that the, you know, the word trophy in hunting is, has been hijacked. I know they're starting to change it to selective hunting rather than trophy, just to try to get away from it, right? Because, but I mean, it's a, these are just words and semantics. The truth is, is that, you know, these people who, who travel around the world and hunt are often the sole reason that certain species even exist anymore. And yeah. if, if we don't support that, if we, if we don't accept that, uh, we will lose species. I, I remember hearing a quote once. I don't know who said it. That if you if you want to protect the uh, or or see a, see an animal species thrive, um, create a hunting season for it. You know, because the hunters step up and they you know they're on the ground with time, money, and and volunteer hours and all that, and and making sure that that whatever they love is protected. And and that's the I think that's the crux of it too. Is that would you talk about your program with the um, Bear Crest International going to the schools, trying to teach people about these wild places and these species is, you know, that's, that's necessary to protect these things because if you don't, for, if people don't know something even exists, they're not going to protect it, obviously. But what you really want to do is get people to, to 
love these things. You know, you want them to, to genuinely love wild spaces and wildlife, and then they'll really protect. Right. You know, and I think the uh, the paradox for a lot of people that aren't in our world is that they they don't really see how you could love something and hunt it. And I think that's that's a hard thing to explain, but it's so true. And and you know, I the, the best thing I can tell people that are maybe listening to this podcast that that don't understand that is you know go talk to some hunters. You know, go go see go see why they hunt their motivations. You'll find that these like especially guys that you know, have elk on the wall and things like that, that they're going to be able to give you a pretty compelling argument as to how they can cherish these species and want to see them thrive and also hunt them. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I always try to say and, and tell people and never jump on a podcast or, or on a big Zoom call, you know, with some of these groups and, and, and giant wildlife conservation partners. I always try to say, you know, I agree. Selective harvest is a better a better word, you know, but the word trophy is only bad if you really if you really don't understand it, you know? And so what I was trying to say is number one, you know, the age class or legal length of a ram. I mean, there's, you don't just get to, for the people that are, are maybe listening that aren't big hunters. I mean, in the Yukon, you have to be eight years old or full curl. And so most rams are very rarely full curl unless they're close to eight, seven, maybe um, you might get the odd tight curl ram, but you know, there's, there's legal age classes. And so the word trophy is is for a special kind of animal and that's kind of where you know the boone and crockett club came in and, and why it was why it was made and a lot of people uh you know they same thing they cast b and c with a with a certain light but it, the, the the ethics that are are bound in the boone and crockett club are are unbelievable because they're saying hey go after the certain very minute small percentage trophy class that reaches this number and people get all caught up. Oh, you're just trying to kill a number. Well, I mean, you're talking about trying to kill a 1% of a 1% of a 1%. I mean, that is, that is, that is true trophy hunting, number one. And, and number two, that's only good for conservation. I mean, that means you're probably most of the time going to be killing the, the oldest, most freaking matured ram, no teeth, sway back, freaking, I mean, thin neck, probably won't make the next couple winters. I mean, you're pursuing a certain animal and and groups like the bnc uh you know they they kind of motivate people to uh to do that and so i i see it as a good thing you know i think people should be going out and and just because they have a tag in their pocket doesn't mean you got to shoot a sheep every year doesn't mean you got to shoot a big elk every year you know if you want to if you want to fill your freezer shoot a cow elk you know that's 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 awesome you know shoot you know shoot a shoot a ram every three years or shoot a ram once you find a you know, mature 10 and a half year old ram, 11 and a half year old ram. I mean, really, really play the, really play the role of a true hunter. And, and, and so I, I think the word trophy can be used incorrectly, but if people really understood, you know, what it really means, I think, uh, I think it's a pretty safe word, honestly. It's just the, the fact mm -hmm. that people don't take the time to really understand, you know, how rare something yeah. like 170 inch ram is true trophy stone sheep or bighorn. Yeah. And I, I think that's another uh, misconception that people that don't understand hunting have is that if they see a stat that says 5,000 tags were sold, they automatically assume 5,000 animals were taken. And th that's something else we need to, to, to help get out there. Like I, I think the success rate is what less than 10% on that if that for for most species so just because a tag is sold doesn't mean a hunter pulls pulls the trigger i think i bought we got 18 huntable big skate big game species in bc over the counter and i think i bought maybe 10 tags last year i didn't pull the trigger so right. that's that's a few hundred dollars every year 
from just one hunter that goes directly into uh, uh, wildlife yeah. without even a pull of the trigger. And our, our hunts are scientifically managed. And we, as we've said over and over, and it sounds like a, a broken record, but we give a shit, right? We, we truly care about seeing animals and wild spaces. And it's not about the kill. So Yeah. And, and whether it's sheep or grizzlies or even the elk behind me, uh, in the Kootenays here, if if there's any concern whatsoever about the population status of species and of species and how they're doing, you know, there's always a requirement for inspection after animals take it. Usually, they're pulling a tooth to do aging, uh, taking material for DNA analysis. Like the the data that's collected from hunter harvest too is also important in the management of wildlife. And uh, you know, I, again, going back to what you said, Steve, it's it's not like a shooting gallery out there. There's a there are there are regulations around hunting designed to allow for the opportunity to hunt and also to allow for the sustainable uh, harvesting of species so that you don't have to worry about declining populations. And, you know, the, the uh, depending on the jurisdiction, government's usually pretty quick to respond if they have a concern. You know, if they see declining populations and hunters are usually the first to back that up and say, hey, let's, uh, let's figure out what's going on here and fix it. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's, uh, there's, there's a lot more that, than meets the eye when it comes to the regulations around hunting. And to your point, Logan, about trophy hunting, if you had a, a species that was huntable and you wanted to choose the best animals to harvest that would have zero impact on overall populations, it would be the old mature males, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, so not only does do, do people often seek those out because of the challenge of finding one, the, the, uh, that's the animal that you can, you can take all day long and not worry about the overall population. So for people to, to, uh, conflate that with with something that's not sustainable is exactly upside down that's right and they're you know all the outfitters are regulated you know and they they uh you know and they re-up your quotas i mean that all comes into that all comes into play and, and they look at all the average ages that you've harvested over your quota say for on a five-year basis and if your average age is 10 and a half 11 years old well it's pretty pretty easy to prove hey i mean they're doing a great job managing this concession uh, we're going to either up their quota or keep it the same. If, if say you came back and your average age was seven and a half, well, it's, you know, unfortunately that kind of shows that there's not a lot of mature rams over a five-year period and they're going to try to ding you. So, you know, it's about taking, taking the right amount of hunters for your concession and, uh, and trying to do a good job where you can kill, kill big rams and, and old rams. You know, this year we killed one of our oldest average ages ever. Uh, we killed a 15 and a half year old ram which was awesome. Uh, we killed nine rams over 11 and a half years old. And so, you know, I mean, we, we're, you, you try to manage it in a sense where we're the only rams really that you're trying to kill are within a couple of years of their, of their deathbed, you know? And so that's, uh, that's what we want to do. And I think as hunters in general, that's what people want to do. And so yeah. the, the, the opposition should see that, you know, that, Hey, we're not, we're not trying to kill Bambi. I mean, we're trying to kill, you know, old mature rams that have been in the breeding pool and they're, they're probably out of it by now. And, you know, some of them are half crippled. Some of them got no teeth. I mean, I've killed so many rams that they don't, they'll bed down for five minutes and then get back up and they got to eat all day long. And then, you know, you, you shoot them and you realize rams got no teeth, you know, <laughs> you know, no kidding. He's got to, can't digest his food properly, you know? And so when minus 50 hits on the North slope and the taiga, I mean, you know, on the peel, it, those rams are going to be dead. And, and we find deadheads every year. I mean, I think one of our guides a few years ago, he found, uh, he found five deadheads just in one, in one small area, you know, where, where, uh, you know, they'll be either the snow had blocked them in or the wolves had kind of been able to get to them. And, and so, 
it's uh yeah if the regulations should reflect what what kind of what kind of job the outfitters are doing and the residents as well and uh and that all needs to be taken into consideration and that's why i think like resin hunters and outfitters like i mean you know people you know if, if you don't need to kill a ram you know try to try to kill a big one i mean it's it's it, you're still out there you know nobody's gonna look down upon you because you went hunting for three weeks and you know the tishoti or the musqua or somewhere in the spats or something and you didn't kill a ram i mean you're out there you're enjoying it and so hold out try to kill something mature kill an old ram kill a ram every five years and uh something you can really be proud of and and also know that when you do that, that helps. That helps our whole cause. That helps the entire industry. That helps the whole conservation movement so that your kids and your your kids' kids can go sheep hunting. Well, Logan, that sounds like a great place to stop. I, I really <laughs> agree with everything you said there. Um, we're just a little over an hour here. But I would like to pitch one more time uh, Bear Crust International for uh, anybody who's listening to this that that wants to learn a little bit more i'd suggest you know uh, i just went on your website before the podcast and you know it's a good site learn a little more and it uh you know it sounds like an, an excellent organization uh yeah well i appreciate the effort you're putting in for conservation logan and uh really nice to touch base with you again it's been a long long time yeah it's, funny. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty weird i always remember jonathan he's a nice guy who's gonna he's gonna be an optometrist and uh crown girl prairie and then here you are so it's pretty yeah. cool so no, I, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been fun. And uh, ever need anything at all, I'm always here for you. Everybody listening, please go try to become a member of Bear Trust International. Become a member of Wild Sheep Foundation. Keep coming to the conventions. Keep trying to support. And, uh, you know, you're making a difference. And we really appreciate it. And I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank awesome. you, Logan. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks, guys. God bless you. <laughs>